I was telling the, the 9.30 service that I, you know, new to the whole preaching in a circle thing, and I'd planned to preach from the, the stand there, but then I realized eye level for all of you would be like my kneecaps, and, and decided that I'm going to try it. So, almost tripped on the rug a couple times in the first service, so there's no telling uh, what might happen. But happy early Labor Day, congratulations, especially to anyone who may be new, because not only are you not at the beach, you picked the Sunday to come here where the new guy is preaching, giving his first sermon. And on top of that, the, the passage that I chose, the story, it ends where the guy we're supposed to identify with, he ends up getting thrown in jail and tortured. So it might be a lot of things, but it should be interesting today. Um, but, uh, but this week, we're continuing our sermon series called This Is Us. And it's about relationships. And throughout these past few weeks, we've been talking about relationships, specifically how ones with the people closest to us are often the hardest and most painful ones that we have. And as we've been talking through this, I'm wondering, why is that? What is it about these relationships that makes them so painful? And, and to, to start, I think what makes them unique is the fact that the, the people closest to us have an ability to hurt us very deeply. They can, they can hurt us the most because we've let these people in past our walls, out, out, let them in the perimeter. English poet William Blake wrote that it is easier to forgive an enemy than a friend. And I think that's true because while we certainly can't be hurt greatly by people we don't know or enemies or strangers, there is something that can strike very deeply about being hurt by a spouse, girlfriend or boyfriend, child, parent, best friend. Because not only is that relationship then broken, but it's been betrayed. In Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, there's a famous scene and a famous line where Caesar's being assassinated by the, you know, his friends who've turned on him. And he, he says the, the famous phrase, et tu brute, even you, Brutus, to his close friend Brutus, who is among the assassins. So the most painful wound wasn't the daggers, it was the betrayal of his own friend. So today, we're going to talk about forgiveness, because the only way to experience healing in the wake of a betrayal is to forgive. And the word forgiveness is one that we throw around a ton in church, we say it a lot, but I'm not sure that we even really know what we mean when we're saying it. A quick Google search will tell you that to forgive is to stop feeling angry towards someone for a mistake. So I'll close with that thought. That's my message for you. Stop feeling angry towards people. Just stop. I'm kidding. I joke about it, but the truth underneath it is that just let it go is about as far as we sometimes get in the conversation about forgiveness. But forgiveness is a lot more complicated and serious than that. For instance, when we're praying the Lord's Prayer and we ask that God forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, do we know what we're asking? The prayer asks God to forgive our sins to the extent, but no further, which we are willing to forgive those who have sinned against us. So there's clearly something very important about forgiveness that we need to be a part of. And we're going to dig into that through the story Jesus tells in the book of Matthew. So let's begin. Let's start with the first little section there. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So the NIV translation, which is what this is of the Bible, it said that the servant owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. And how many dollars that would be today depends on how big the bag was. But the original text says, says the amount was 10,000 talents. And conservative estimates say that that would be roughly the equivalent of $10 million today. Some estimates say it's into the hundreds of millions. But regardless, it's an enormous debt. And the king forgives it. And it's, reason, it's easy to read over that part and just be like, man, that king, what a, what a nice guy. And just kind of move on. But forgiveness comes at a high cost to the king. It's not free for him to forgive, and it's not cheap to forgive. That debt doesn't just go away. The king is the one who absorbs those losses. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness isn't painless. It isn't cheap. In canceling that debt, there are 10,000 bags of gold that that king has given away and now will never see again. Forgiveness has a cost to the giver. Forgiveness means accepting the fact that you won't be given what you're owed. And as far as who represents who in the analogy here, the, the answer to that is pretty thinly veiled. God is the king who has forgiven our, the servant's, debt. So what is this huge debt that we've racked up? Our debts are our sins. And I'm not simply talking about a lifetime of breaking rules or violations of the Ten Commandments. Sin, sin goes a lot deeper than how we behave. Sin is a part of us in our soul that's a little bent it's a little twisted. When we're well-rested, optimistic, doing virtuous things, when we've gotten our volunteer hours in, it's easy to convince ourselves that this broken part of us doesn't exist. But our sin is the side of us that creeps out from the shadows when patience has run out, when you're tired, when we're at our worst. It's a side of us that sees someone we can't stand going through a hard time and, and kind of enjoys it a little bit. Or maybe it's a side of us that sees our friends going through a hard time and maybe enjoys it a little bit. It's the burning drive in us to dominate one another, to win not only so that we'll be the victor, but that so, so that we'll be able to stand above and look down at the defeated among our feet. Sin can creep out even when we're confessing our sin and hoping to look humble as if we lower, lowered ourselves. Sin is the persistent inner murmur of jealousy, greed, self-congratulation, complacency, and spite, which sometimes lashes out like an erupting volcano, but usually lays dormant, waiting, peering calm on the outside, but teeming with energy underneath. And one of the best images I, I've seen of this is what happened during the Rwandan genocide. So in, in 1994, 
roughly a 100-day genocide broke out in the African country of Rwanda. And there were two large ethnic groups in Rwanda at the time, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And there's a lot of history about why these two groups were embittered and turned against one another that I don't have time to get into, but all you need to know is that these two groups were pitted against one another. And in 1994, some of the extremist majority Hutu leaders endorsed and encouraged the indiscriminate killing of the Tutsis. Names of Tutsis were announced over the radio and the addresses where they lived so that militias from their village would be encouraged to go and murder, rape, steal, and vandalize. And many of the members of these local militias were, were former neighbors Prominent members of the community, businessmen, teachers, doctors, the good people, joined these militias. And, some, and somewhere between half a million to a million Rwandans were killed in a span of 100 days, many with machetes. The details are horrific. Pictures are even worse. But the question that sociologists have been asking ever since is, is how these normal law-abiding citizens, how, the, how these good people turn so vicious and violent towards the people who used to be their neighbors? How could these good people do such horrible things? And the answer some of them have, have made, which I, I think is right, is that, that once chaos and disorder took over, the social pressures that had held people kind of in, in position collapsed. So for example, normally if someone, let's say someone stole from another person in the community or vandalized their property, there'd be legal issues. They'd be arrested, fined, possibly jailed, but also they'd face social trouble and pressure of they're a traitor to their community, they're troublemakers, we don't want to do business with them, we don't want our kids hanging around them, we don't want them in our neighborhood. Same goes, but to a greater extreme, for murdering or raping someone. Anyone who had committed these times would face jail time, maybe life or death sentence, and would be viewed as a villain and an outcast and would be kicked out of the community. All of a sudden, however, this structure collapses and these pressures disappear overnight. Now, all of a sudden, you can go and steal and loot from someone's home, and not only will you not get caught or arrested, you can kill them and no one but you will ever know. What happened? And this is exactly what you saw play out in Rwanda. A community which appeared moral was revealed to be simply held together by practicality and self-preservation. And it makes you wonder, you hear a story like that and you have to wonder if all the consequences were gone in our society, what would we do? What would you do? What would I do? How much of what we do is driven by self-preservation and how much is driven by what we actually believe? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying everyone in here is a murderer waiting for you know, the right time to strike. I know there are lots of people in this room who work very hard to live morally upstanding lives and do a good job of it. And there is good in each and every one of us. The book of Genesis tells us how God himself breathed the breath of life into us and made us in his image. But the book of Genesis also tells us that we are the sons and daughters of Adam, descendants of the fall who have fallen, and that there is something very broken and very sick inside of us. And we can't work our way out of that sickness, that brokenness. We can't by sheer willpower to remove the stain from our souls. 
This is what, the, the whole point of that is we have to be able to look in the mirror and come to terms with what is there to know what's staring back at us. Because one who admits no guilt can't accept forgiveness. Jesus himself said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's go back to the parable. After being called on his debt, the servant went down on his knees and said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And much like the servant, our natural response to come to terms with this debt we just talked about is to try and, by our sheer willpower, to redeem ourselves. As the servant did, we, we try to free ourselves by trying harder, working longer. And there, there's no way this servant could pay off this debt. But that's where his mind immediately goes. And don't ours do the same? Aware of our own guilt, our own debt, knowing deep down that something is missing, our natural response is to use work, to perform, to achieve, to measure up, to try and distract ourselves from and make up for the parts of us which we know are not whole. We try to convince ourselves otherwise. Well, let's keep reading and see how it plays out. But then that servant went out, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. That should sound familiar. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. So possibly even on the way home, this guy who had just been forgiven the 10,000 talent debt goes out and goes after someone who owes him a debt. He chokes him and then refuses to have mercy and he gets the guy thrown into jail. And this, to me, when I read this, it's just puzzling because what you expect is something like what you see in A Christmas Carol or like Paul on the Road to Damascus where a guy who's just got, got his whole life wrong, has this over-the-top experience, and it just it turns everything on its head. And he turns around and, and has a, a new kind of worldview on life. His, his old one was turned on its head. But what we see is just the opposite. Nothing changes. And how, how could this happen? How could this guy justify being so ungrateful? And the story doesn't come out and tell us but I think the answer is pretty simple. Despite the 10,000 bags of gold that this man had been forgiven, in the depths of his heart, he, he still believed he could pay it off on his own. If only he had a little more time, a little patience. Just give me more time, I'll fix it on my own. He didn't believe he desperately needed that forgiveness. Sure, being saved, being, being forgiven saved him a, a lot of hard work and time that he would have had to grind, but, but again, he, he didn't think he was in, in any situation beyond his ability to fix. And here's the point. There, there's a difference between wanting forgiveness, like this servant, and then feeling like you are completely hopeless and wrecked without it. Because I'm sure it wasn't difficult for, for this servant to come up with excuses how he'd gotten himself in such a mess. Unlucky investment, wrong timing. 
Uh, employees were lazy. Thing, you know, things they needed, needed to work harder or just plain bad luck. Yet, he was unable or unwilling to consider these same excuses for this fellow servant who owed a debt to him. And isn't, isn't that often true of us? We're quick to excuse and justify our own sins, believing the best about ourselves. Yet we're very ready to criticize and judge the sins of other people, assuming the worst about them and their, their motivations, their intentions. But what's clear is that the extreme forgiveness of this king did not change this man. And again, we, we never see this clearly spelled out in the text. We don't have a ton of details. But it can be assumed based on how the king reacts in the next section that there was an expectation and an unspoken agreement that as a result of the forgiveness of the king, the servant would then go out and be forgiving. The forgiveness the servant received was without conditions. He didn't have to work to receive it. But it was not without an expected consequence, something that would happen as a result of it. The king did not require a past, but he did expect a future. And God requires nothing of our past, but he does expect us to be the people who forgive and forgive at a cost. So if you, if you read quickly through this story, you generally see the huge debt of the first servant in contrast with the, the smaller debt of the second servant. And, and, and you think, man, that, that second servant's debt was tiny. But the debt of the second servant wasn't small. The original text says it was 100 denarii, which is around 100 days' wages. So we're talking a third of a year's work. It's not like he owed him money for a sandwich and a, a ride on an Uber camel or something like that. It, it only seems like a small amount compared to the, the debt of the first servant. And this gets to the very heart of the parable. When other people hurt us, those wounds are real. The debts are real. The parable isn't saying the pain we feel is illegitimate or that it's so small that it doesn't count. That's not what it's saying. Instead, it's saying, yes, you were wronged. There is a debt against you. But don't let that pain make you lose sight of your own betrayal, your own rebellion against the one who created you. Don't forget that you, too, are a debtor. But also don't forget that you're completely forgiven and that you need to forgive. And so I'll stop for a moment and land the plane and talk about very practically what forgiveness looks like. To forgive someone doesn't mean that you immediately put your trust right back in them. Doesn't mean that things right after you forgive go right back to the way that they were before. If your business partner cheated you, it doesn't mean that night you forgive them and then go draw up a new business plan and, and contract. Forgiving someone doesn't mean you excuse evil. To forgive is not to condone. To condone is to treat something evil as if it was good, and this is not what we're commanded. But we are commanded to forgive, which begins just by stopping choking someone. Take your fingers out from around their neck. It's calling off the war. It's laying down the arms. It's not, as Google tells us, to stop feeling angry because a lot of times forgiveness begins in the midst of that anger. 
But what forgiveness often looks like is praying time and time again, sometimes through gritted teeth and clenched fists, that you'd be able to forgive them for what they've done. And one day our feelings of anger towards that person and wishes for their demise will begin to shift into a prayer that that person would be made whole again. That the brokenness in them would be put back together. Because this is the heart and the will of the king. This is the heart and will of God who wishes that both you and I would also be made whole. That we'd be put back together. His wish is to make our hearts more like his. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, but you don't understand. What this person did was something I can never forgive. And, and you're right, there are pains in this room, some from decades ago, and some unfolding right now, that I could never understand. Some here know the, the broken heart, which comes from when your beloved chooses to find happiness elsewhere. Others know the pain of being mocked or made to feel small by the ones you love. Still others know the hurt of being abandoned by a parent. Some know the betrayal of being sold out by a friend. But there's one who knows all of these betrayals. God felt the pain of his beloved looking elsewhere when humanity chose and continues to choose to find happiness and fulfillment anywhere but in him. Jesus was mocked by the very ones he came to save as they nailed him to the cross, made a handmade crown of thorns to put on his head, and then put a sign over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus knew the feeling of being abandoned by a parent in his cry of dereliction on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew the betrayal of his closest friends when Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Yet as the soldiers prepared to kill him and were gambling over his clothing, he spoke some of his final words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So how do we forgive like that? You can't. So if we just try to pull our bootstraps up and, as I referenced at the beginning, stop getting angry, you'll end up being cynical from being betrayed too many times. You'll become judgmental of other people for how they aren't as forgiving as you. Or you'll deal with it by turning into some kind of stoic who you move yourself from both the positive and negative experiences of relationships, the pain and the joy. And none of these are the answers. We can forgive like Jesus by looking to Jesus. And we don't look to him as an inspirational figure, a moral guide, someone who gives good quotes, not, some, not even someone who can help you. But we have to look it to him as someone who can save you. Look to Jesus, who told his disciples that he will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. God sent the Holy Spirit to work in and to change our hearts to be more like his. So does this mean that immediately you'll be made into someone as forgiving as the king? No, probably not. But as we read in the book, as we read in the book of Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion 
until the day of Christ Jesus. So as some of you know, my wife and I just had our first daughter. Her name is Isla, and some of you might have been thinking, man, I can't believe he's going to get through this whole thing without mentioning his baby. That would be a real crowd pleaser. But here she is. Oh, be still my heart. Uh, uh, but, but what has been very interesting is watching her grow. So she's a month old, and I, I've never woken up in the morning and looked at her in her bassinet and been like, wow, she grew a ton last night. But my parents and in-laws have been here to visit, and we send them pictures, and they always comment about how much she's growing, how different she looks. And lo and behold, we go to the doctor last week, and it turns out she's grown two inches and gained three pounds in a month. And I tell you this because, because this is how a lot of our growth as Christians is going to happen. We won't notice the change until one day we find ourselves in a situation and we think, wow, I'm not sure I would have handled this as well a month ago. Or it would have taken me weeks to forgive that a year ago. Change of the heart is often a long road. But again, if you simply open the door, the Holy Spirit will change you. But we need to finish our story. Let's pick up at verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And this, this was admittedly the hardest part of the whole parable to come to terms with because it's kind of a, a scary ending. Uh, but there are two things I, I want to say about it and then we'll be done. So first, take a look at verse 31 uh, where the other servants see what happened, they get upset and then they go and they tell the master. And if you take this to the logical extreme, you could ask, well, we got this whole forgiveness thing going. Instead of reporting the servant to the master, why don't they just forgive him? Or you could ask, why doesn't the master forgive the servant again? He already did it once. Uh, what happened to the whole like 77 time thing uh, we mentioned at the beginning? And again, I, I say to forgive someone is not to condone the evil they perpetrate. Let's make no mistake, because God is forgiving, it doesn't mean that he cozies up to evil. Forgiving someone doesn't mean being a doormat, it doesn't mean letting them run all over you. So as far as why the other servants don't just forgive him, the section right before this parable in chapter 18 actually talks about how to handle sin and discipline in the church, and they kind of follow that model. So that part is, that answer is easy to provide, but the response to the second one, and I'm not going to call it an answer, just a response, it's, it's hard to answer why the master doesn't forgive the servant again, why he sends them to jail to be tortured. Because again, the parallel has been made this, for this king to God, and that makes God seem pretty harsh. And to that, again, I can only speculate. I don't know this man's story. I don't know the servant's story beyond what we've read here. But it could be that God knows this man's heart. And he knows that it is not mercy, but it's pain that will finally bring him to his knees. In his book, in his book The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis comments that we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
Again, this is just my speculation. I'll leave it at that. So second and lastly, why, another question that comes to mind, why does the master care so much about what the servant does? Shouldn't he just be glad debts are being paid and settled in his kingdom? The condition of the servant really isn't his business, is it? Same goes for us. Once we've been forgiven by God, what difference does it make to God whether or not we are forgiving? It makes a big difference. Whereas creation and his wish is to see us made whole. So I grew up in Beaufort, South Carolina, and one of the landmarks of our town is the drawbridge downtown. It's uh, called the Richard B. Woods Memorial Bridge, and some of you might recognize it from the movie Forrest Gump. And Forrest Gump, Forrest crosses over it uh, in, in his run across the country. And you can see the sign says Mississippi there on the right, but that is the Beaufort River, and that's the Richard B. Woods Memorial Bridge. And it's named after a police officer, Richard B. Woods, who was shot and killed in the line of duty in 1969. And the guy who killed him was given a life sentence. And around the time I was in middle school, this prisoner came up for parole. And Officer Woods' family started his petition to deny his parole. I remember seeing these petitions. They were on the countertops of like gas stations, grocery stores, restaurants. They were everywhere. And it kind of became a thing that everyone around town knew about. And turns out, I don't know if it was because of this petition or not, but parole was denied. And every couple of years, this guy would come back up for parole. And every couple of years, Officer Woods' family would, would bring this uh, petition out, and you'd see it. You'd see it on the counter. You'd say, oh, well, I guess dude's back up for parole. And, and, and this went on and on until finally the prisoner died in prison in 2008. Never got on parole. And I remember our local newspaper, Beaufort Gazette, it, they ran an article at the time this guy died. The prisoner died, and they told the story of Officer Woods, the bridge, the parole hearings, the petitions, because again, these were things like people in town knew about. And then at the end of the article, though, they wrote this sentence. They said, now at last, Officer Woods' family can finally be free. But I don't think that's true. Officer Woods' family could have been free years before 2008. And again, this doesn't mean that what happened wasn't tragic or evil wasn't done. But they didn't need to what happened on that day in 1969 lock them in a prison cell of their own. Their hearts were kept in chains for years by this one man's evil act. And again, I'll say to forgive is not to undo. To forgive this man, they, they didn't need to have him over for Sunday dinners or name their dog after him, but they could be set free from the weight of carrying around what happened that day. And the parable closes with the command to forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And that's what it's about. God wants to change our hearts. See us set free. As we wind down, I'll return to where we began. Right after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I don't want to take the edge off of that. As Christians, we have to forgive. There are no exceptions. There are no clauses, no earmarks. But I will say, if you take this out of the context of the greater biblical narrative, this can sound like we have to save ourselves by doing the right things. And this runs into what I was talking about earlier with the debt we have 
there's a problem, and I don't have to tell us all this, we often don't do the right things. We make a habit of turning away from God, and we frequently fail to love our neighbors. Our hearts continue to turn back inward towards ourselves. And because of this, like the servant, we end up on the wrong side of a huge debt. But the good news is that, like the servant said, our debt is forgiven. And it was forgiven at a cost to God himself. And the cost was God's own son, who was betrayed and killed by the very world he came to save. So if we place our trust in Jesus, who defeated death, rather than relying on our own efforts to make ourselves whole, we too will find life, and life to the full. And I'll close with this. Protestant reformer John Calvin, he wrote that it is therefore faith alone which justifies, not what we do, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Our ability to forgive does not save us, but forgiven people should be forgiving people. And as forgiving people, we have the joy and privilege of being the physical extension of the forgiveness and grace of God in a culture and a world that is entrenched in judgment and division. The church can be the light of the world, the body of Christ, offering forgiveness and freedom as only the forgiven can. Please pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the king, kingdom, power, glory forever. Amen.